everybody, and welcome to this podcast for the LSE Higher Education blog. My name's Claire Gordon, and I'm Director of the Eden Centre for Education Enhancement at the London School of Economics. And I'm delighted to welcome here today to talk about the reactive chalk face, Mary Wright, who's Associate Provost for Teaching and Learning and Executive Director of the Sheridan Centre for Teaching and Learning at Brown University, who I had the great good fortune to meet at a panel at the Reimagine Education Conference a couple of years ago. And also I'm delighted to welcome back Peter Bryant, who's a former colleague at LSE, who's now the Associate Dean of Education and an Associate Professor of Business Education at the University of Sydney Business School. Before I hand over to my colleagues to tell you a little bit more about their universities and the worlds in which they work, I just wanted to briefly tell you something about the origins of this podcast on the reactive chalk face. Last September, I decided to take to Twitter and express a degree of frustration, I think, about the nature of the work world that we were encountering at the moment. And I wrote, COVID has taken away reflective spaces and expanded the remit of what we as academics are called on to do. Hashtag the reactive chalk face. And really, that just was a spur of the moment tweet, but it's given rise to a whole area of reflection and dialogue and conversation with colleagues inside our university and across the sector about what is this reactive chalk face and has our work as academic developers and those education experts been affected by the COVID pandemic. But before we go into more detail about debating the, the, the meanings and the rights and wrongs of the notion of the reactive chalk face, I'd like to hand over to my colleagues to introduce themselves and tell you a little bit more about who they are and where they're coming from. So first of all, Mary, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Claire. Uh, so I'm Mary Wright. And as you as you noted, I work at Brown University, um, which is located in Providence, Rhode Island, the smallest state in the United States. Um, Brown was formed in 1764. So before the United States, um, it's an Ivy League university. And we have about 10,000 students, 67 of 100 of whom are undergraduates. The center in which I work is the, called the Sheridan Center for Teaching and Learning. We have 35 staff. Uh, we also have six provost faculty teaching fellows who are faculty who partner with us to do our work. And then we also uh, employ about 500 undergraduates and graduate students to also partner with us to advance teaching and learning. So it's a model that is often being called an integrated center for teaching and learning because we are bringing together digital learning, instructional development, as well as direct academic support. And so from all of those vantage points, it's been an interesting ride <laughs> during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'll turn things over to Peter. Thank you. Um, so I, as was mentioned, I work at the University of Sydney. We are Australia's oldest university, uh, formed in uh, around about 1870. We were um, originally created to represent uh, the traditions of Oxford and Cambridge in Sydney. And in fact, our quadrangle was built to look exactly like a quadrangle from one of those universities with the motto, whilst the stars may change, the knowledge remains the same, which is slightly colonial and slightly idiosyncratic. Uh, we have emerged a lot to be a lot bigger than that. We are a university with about 75,000 students and my faculty, which is the Faculty of Business, has about 15,000 of those students around 50 or 55 percent of those are international which is the significant and existential challenge that COVID has provided considering Australia has had its borders closed to all international citizens since March 2020. 
So over nearly 50% of our students haven't been able to return to the campus, which does generate uh, some substantial educational challenge, but also not surprisingly, some, some, some substantial financial challenge as well. Thank you, Peter. So maybe I'll um, finish off by saying something a little bit about the London School of Economics and Political Science, which as it turns out is the youngest child to the party being founded in 1895 at the heart of London. It's a social science faculty and it was set up to understand the causes of things with the aim of the betterment of society, but uh, we have been interrogating which parts of that society were, were, were considered to be desirable for betterment in recent years as we've been considering some of our colonial past as well. LSE has 12,000 students, roughly divided half and half between undergraduates and postgraduates. So we have a very high, relatively speaking, a very high, large postgraduate community. And the Eden Centre for Education Enhancement is also very new. We're bringing together our academic development team and our digital education team under one roof. And we thought that this would be a way of building on the synergies of the expertise of both these different teams. And we basically have five key areas of activity. I mean, they're overlapping, they have many um, strands to them, but they relate to curriculum enrichment, academic staff development, digital education, inclusive education, and student partnership. And just as Mary said, in all those different areas, our work has been thrown up into the air and huge demands have been placed on us and huge opportunities open to us over the course of the pandemic. So maybe we can now turn to this notion of the reactive chalk face and I'll try and briefly say how I understand the notion of the reactive chalk face and then I'd like to ask you both what you think of this as a notion, does it resonate with you, do you agree, do you disagree? So for me I think the reactive chalk face came to mind for three different reasons. One I was reflecting on the fact that whatever role you play as a in, in the world of academic development, usually a key aspect of our identity relates to the scholarly evidence-based underpinnings to the work we do, to applying the findings of scholarly research to trying to make education better, to put it quite simplistically. And what we found in the course of the pandemic, when we've been faced, like I'm sure you both have, trying to turn around a, a traditional research intensive university which is very wedded to teaching face-to-face mainstream programs with students lovely international body of students on campus we suddenly had to switch into three mixed modes of education and our work became and has become incredibly reactive and we lost that space for reflection another dimension of that of this work of this notion of the reactive chalk face it is the call from our colleagues for tips for easy solutions easy answers just tell me three ways how to how to run a zoom session and and that kind of goes against the grain too because we know that our colleagues our academic colleagues across the institution are very scholarly in the approach they take to their disciplinary research and we also know that if they step back a bit and thought about it they fully understand the complexities of teaching, learning, assessment, the student experience more broadly. And yet the, the pressures of the pandemic, the challenges everyone were facing was leading to a, almost a dumbing down, a, a, a nullifying, if I can say that, of maybe that's a bit of an overstatement of our expertise. And I suppose the chalk face was just a sort of a way of translating the work we do to an educational uh, metaphor 
rather than a being down the mines. Although I think some of us have felt like we were down the mines for a lot of the last almost a year now. So maybe um, with that brief introduction, I could ask Mary for her thoughts on the notion of the reactive chalk face. Well, thank you for laying that out, Claire. I think there are some pieces of it that certainly do resonate and some which from my vantage point, I have a maybe a different perspective. So I think that the thing that most resonates is the rapidity of, of the move from zero to 60 in mid-March. And it, in my own particular institution, to give an example, in fall 2019, we had zero online courses. There were a handful before that. And now, in uh, last fall as well, every single course has to be offered in a fully online or hybrid context. So it was quite a dramatic shift for the university and our ways of being. I think in terms of the second piece that I heard from you in terms of the volume of the work, I think that also resonates. <laughs> Certainly Sheridan Center staff have been um, facing an increased volume of work, which is a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing in terms of I certainly hear conversations again and again about burnout. And as a leader of the organization, that concerns me. I think the third piece that I feel have a different experience on is the call for easy answers. And so maybe I saw more of an evolution around that. So at the end of the spring term and at the end of the fall term, the university sent a survey to all faculty asking them essentially uh, three questions what went what went well what was effective why do you think it was effective and what might you do differently and we saw very different responses in those two time points so at the end of the fall when i coded the responses the most frequent answer was what went well was a pretty fluid transition i didn't have to change anything at all <laughs> i just transplanted my course to zoom then but what i saw in the fall was a very different character of answers where people were, there was a more profound, I think, rethinking because of the time that people had over the summer to really intentionally build the course from the ground up. And so I think a biology faculty member talked about it best when he said, now I realize that teaching an online course is, is like uh, vegetarian cooking. You can't just take meat out and substitute tofu in. You really need to reconceptualize what that dish is like. And so, you know, sorry to extend the pun, but I do think there's a different flavor of ways that people are thinking about teaching that again has changed over time as, as they've iterated uh, and, and tried and experimented new things in the classroom. Thank you, Mary. That's really fascinating. I wonder if you could give us an example of the way you see people have, have been reconceptualizing their thinking about teaching online, that sort of move from a replication model to actually reconceptualizing the nature of teaching and learning in an online environment? Yes, well, I think two things come to mind. One is that it frees you of time and space in interesting ways. So we used to be rooted to essentially 50 minute blocks of courses, where one might give an interactive lecture in those 50 minutes. Instead, because we don't have those blocks, faculty are coming to realize if I'm teaching something that might best be served by a recorded lecture for 10 minutes, and then I can use the class time for discussion, that 
would be a better way to meet my core learning objectives. Uh, also the space piece as well. I think it's freeing for faculty to know <laughs> I could be working abroad. I could be embedded in a company. I could be essentially teaching away, just like study away, teaching away, uh, and still maintain academic continuity. Likewise, I can bring in the out outside guest speakers are much more cost efficient <laughs> to bring into classes. And so we've had some fantastic additions to Brown classes that certainly would have been outside of our economic <laughs> feasibility beforehand. So I think that's one piece, the time and space. A second piece I think is thinking about a new, more student-centered way of instruction. Part of that I think was facilitated again over the summer where um, because of some of the work that we had done at the Sheridan Center, students were working as co-designers with faculty to really shift the roles of who is the teacher and who is the learner. And I think that has bled into the classroom as well with some of the things that we're hearing from faculty about what works best is where it's a more student-centered form of instruction, for example, led by student presentations or student-led breakout discussions or even um, forefronting undergraduate TAs or graduate TAs in terms of getting a perspective on what's working well. Thank you. That's that's really helpful. Um, Peter, over to you. What what does the reactive chalk face mean to you? So with the Australian academic year being out of sync to both the European um, and the American ones, we started our academic year in February with the assumption that uh, our borders had been closed in order to prevent the virus reaching Australia, uh, which was a forlorn hope, but that was the plan. So we started the year in a hybrid mode. Uh, we had our international students overseas and we were giving them the most basic opportunities to consume materials, watch uh, not pre-recorded lectures, but watch the lecture recordings uh, in the hope that after three weeks they'd be able to join us. But then literally on the Friday afternoon of week three, we were told that everything was to go online by Monday. We had about two days to move the entire uh, operation of the semester quite early in the semester online. So for us, the notion of the reactive chalk faces has got a couple of things. One, yes, that immediate move of people to shift mode happened without a doubt. People shifted from doing a face-to-face -face delivery to Zoom. They went quite easily to um, putting more of their discussions on Canvas, which is our um, learning management system, versus uh, having them in the classroom. And that happened relatively smoothly. Students knew about it. They understood because they themselves were locked down. The reactive bit was how rapidly people were willing to change assessment in the midst of all of this. So because we shifted in the middle of a semester, we had to change every one of our unit's assessments. Exams went from being face-to-face -to, -face to online. How do you do, and I know these are archaic and idiosyncratic uh, assessment methods, which I have fundamental problems with, but they are existent in my university. How do you do participation marks? And how do you give a participation mark when um, you've got 150 students on a Zoom call, that it's very hard to, to work out who's talking where, they're using non-diplumes, they're not using their real names. And we also had to then shift presentations and, uh, and all of the more practical 
um, authentic forms of assessment. And we ended up with just a hell of a lot of exams. Not great for the students, not particularly good for an authentic assessment experience, but relatively easy to deploy in an online situation. But that had to change mid-semester. So I felt that was quite reactive. There wasn't a lot of thought put to that. Uh, And if us as having some expertise and, and scholarly thinking around higher education were to actually reflect on that as a hypothetical situation, we would be aghast at having to do that. But I think some of the senses of reactiveness weren't necessarily from colleagues, they were from us. You know, we had to sort of turn over some of the behaviours and practices that we were used to. We had to not get caught up. And, and this, is a, this was a particular issue in some of the educational technology circles. We had to not, as a sector, get caught up in the triumphalism of this is our time. You know, we've been sitting there telling everyone they should focus on their teaching and learning. They should start to embrace technology. And we have been resisted and, and held against that, 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 uh, that desire. And now is our time. And that was never going to be a way in which we should have reacted. But there were parts of the sector that did. Um, I am glad that my institution didn't. Uh, and we took a much more pragmatic approach that we're there to help the centre, one of the centres that I lead, which is the business co-design team, basically put aside their major project uh, and they just worked tirelessly at elbow with thousands of academics over the course of that 13-week semester, doing nothing else but you know, reassuring them that, yes, sometimes Zoom does go down and reassuring them that, yes, students are going to have some problems with proctored exams. So I do think the similarity comes from the re- there is a sense of reactiveness that I think in assessment, but I do think that sense of our own reactiveness uh, is something that is, that's probably worth exploring uh, as we uh, work our way, hopefully, to a post-COVID world. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting, Peter, the sort of reactiveness of, the, of our own teams to, to this situation, how we've responded. And like, maybe we can come back to that in a minute. But first of all, I'd like to perhaps start with Peter this time and ask you, over time, you've been in this, you've, it, it's over a year now since you've been grappling with the COVID um, crisis in Australia. And I just wondered, what have you learned? What do you think is the best way to shape the coalface? What, 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 what's worked well? And where have you actually been able to begin to affect some cultural change in your institution? Or is it too early to say? For us, I think the thing that we've debated the most, and it, it's not necessarily universal across the institution, we're obviously one faculty of a multi-faculty institution. Uh, and it's very different if in medicine or in science or in engineering. But in our faculty, <clears throat> the, the main thing we've tried to learn from this is, do we want to go back to where we were in 2019 and treat 2020 and now what looks clearly like 2021 to be an aberration uh, and that those were like our COVID years and we just go back to where we were? Or is there something that has come out of this that we think is actually transformative of education? So the two things that, we are fo- that we've had real, I think, movement on have been a project that we started about two years ago called Connected Learning at Scale. And <clears throat> we are, as a business school, as most business schools are, we deliver at scale. 
Uh, our classes are huge. Um, our main core unit classes are around 15 to 1700 students. Our normal staff student ratio in those classes can, can top 30 to one. Uh, just simply by the necessity, we can't get enough teachers. So we have to go for bigger, bigger classes and that scale generates its problems. One of the things that, that this has done for us in the last year is it has accelerated people's exposure to some of the ways in which we were facilitating connected learning at scale. Uh, and the, probably the best example of that has been the pre-recorded lecture. Um, we have been, and me personally and along with the, with the leadership of the school, have been railing against the efficacy of just the straight lecture. It has, a, it has its place, it has its advantages, but it is not the easiest form of delivery to do and not everybody is an expert or good at it. Um, so, and it's actually really easy to be bad at it. So um, moving away from the pre-record, moving away from the lecture, moving towards chunked lectures, moving towards, as Mary pointed out, that, that 10 minute piece, which is, which is brilliant. And wouldn't it be fantastic if in, instead of me giving an example, I got someone from industry to give that example because they're on Zoom too, and it's pretty easy for me just to pre-record them at whatever time suits. And we build this very um, narrative-driven block. So instead of an hour of a person standing at a lectern, it's an hour of 10 different chunks of different voices. Then you throw in the interactivity capability where instead of saying to students, you have to watch all of this hour, Look at path A and or path B. Which path do you want to go down? Do you want to watch that case or that case? And then have that interactivity built in there. That, I think, is truly transformative. If we've learned something from the pandemic, it's that we don't have to just blast information, that we can actually create an environment with which students engage in that. And the surveys we've done of the students, the one thing they have really enjoyed out of this they've hated the isolation they've hated the lack of human contact they've hated not being on campus but they have loved the way the lectures have been transformed into something that is actually interesting and engaging so I reckon if I hope if anything's come out of it I reckon it's that thanks Peter so Mary what do you think has been the best way to shape the chalk face what 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 do you think that the Sheridan Centre has 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 effectively pushed and might have legacies for the future. As I mentioned earlier, online teaching was a very new thing for Brown University. And I think by any predictions, people thought it was really going to be terrible. And we're not seeing that. We're not seeing that in both the faculty experience. And indeed, if you look, compare our course feedback from students from fall 19 to fall 20, every single item is higher for the fall 20 feedback. So, so given that, I don't see us turning back, going back to normal, but I do think we're entering a new normal, which is because I'm a sociologist, I think about the idea of norms embedded in that as, as changing expectations and patterns of behavior. And I do think we're seeing some of that, again, circling back to the comments I was noting earlier. I also think the idea of normal has an old definition too, about normal schools, which were places for preparing teachers. And I do think it's helped us at the Sheridan Center 
um, think about our educational development approaches as well. We found, for example, that faculty also like online modules that are asynchronous, <laughs> that they can access 24-7. That wasn't something that we did a lot before. Our graduate teaching instructor orientation has now fully moved from an in-person model, and we're just going to keep offering an online graduate teaching instructor orientation because we've got, gotten such positive feedback from that. So those are things that I think are going well. We also fully realized our vision of engaging faculty as peer educators in educational development over the summer. I hadn't known that faculty would feel like they had to, the time to do that at a research university but they did and it worked splendidly. Uh, and they were such an important part of the success in terms of helping to manage not only pedagogical change, but the emotional nature of that change with their colleagues. So those are things that I think are going well. There are some things I think we're still figuring out too, and I can mention those, but I'll stop there. Okay, thank you. Maybe just to close the circle, I'll say a little bit about L the context at LSE. So I think that where we have seen change, which I hope will be sustained into the future, is also in the area of lecturing. But I, th I think we've just expanded the notion of lecturing. And I think we'll find that there will be colleagues who are very keen to get back into the, into the classroom to deliver their lectures. I think others have seen the efficacy of chunking their lectures up and, and giving um, a series of short segments um, and then keeping that lecture space open for more interactive Q&As, discussions with their students. And, and a third version has been the pre-recorded lecture online. So I think we've kind of opened up some vistas of opportunity for our colleagues who, who are very wedded to quite formalistic models of teaching and learning. And I, and I think that, you know, we've repeatedly had conversations with our colleagues across the university at different points in time saying if you'd said to me six months ago if you'd said to me four months ago if you said to me 10 months ago we would be teaching our entire university offering online to 12,000 students and and we would be just about okay with it we would have said you were mad and and we've succeeded in doing that and and, and the colleagues I think have, have have surprised themselves as well as each other another area is that I think that we've kind of done some work in moving our virtual learning environment Moodle, moving it a little bit further away from being just that repository of, of stuff, of knowledge, of lecture notes, of course, descriptions into being seen as a, a key space for active learning for our students. And we know from our own surveys that we conducted last summer that Moodle became the most important interface for our students in the university site for learning site for information in terms of what was going on and so we've really encouraged our faculty and we've provided we've we've worked with um, phd students and they've been paid to work with faculty partner with faculty on the enhancement of their moodle sites like mary um, the eden center has also moved online we've we're, we're running our postgraduate certificate for higher education which is a qualification for early career faculty completely online this year We've run our program, our inductions for heads of department, graduate teaching assistants and new academics completely online. And we see the benefits in terms of people can attend flexibly, people can dip in and out. But we also do miss those sort of community building moments. And I think I think the hardest nut to crack in this online environment are those are those moments for authentic social community building among staff, among students, among staff and students. 
And, um, and, and, and finally, I think it is really important to note it's not about transformation, it's not about shaping the, the chalk face, but it's about the fact that students have been really appreciative of, of all the effort that has gone in. They know this is a really hard period of time. They're facing all sorts of challenge and struggle in their environments in which they're living or taking on extra caring responsibilities or facing other obstacles in their lives, but they can see that the efforts that faculty have been making to support them and enable their teaching and learning and so I, I you know so I hope some of that sort of more collaborative um, relationships between staff and students will continue although right now in the UK there's a big debate going on about fee rebates so that might slightly sully the, the waters of collaboration nonetheless I think you know there are some really big positives that have come out of this crisis, those sort of windows of opportunity. And I'm also interested, Mary, in seeing how those new norms become embedded. Will they become embedded? I think that the fact that we started to plan now for 2021, 22, with a continued online delivery, perhaps in part, we don't know yet. We'll have to see what the conditions allow, is making people feel rather weary um, to, at the thought of, of a continuity. So before we close, I wonder if I could ask one final question of you all, which is, um, have there been areas of, of, of tension of where, where your academic development teams, your learning technology teams have, have felt they've, they, they, they've experienced a tension, which what they would see as good practice education has come into tension with policy decisions the university has had to take? And maybe I can give you um, a couple of examples, one where a decision was taken and one where we won the battle with, with, with collaboration from students and other colleagues across the university. So very briefly, early on in our what, what the LSE called its Curriculum Shift 2020, we were keen to discourage hybrid teaching. Sometimes that's called high flex, where you have students face to face on campus in the same class or seminar as students might be online. And we were very concerned about the ability to deliver to both sets of students, a high quality inclusive learning experience. And then we had, a, we had many more students than we anticipated and workload constraints meant that many, many more people across the university had to move to this hybrid model of teaching. And perhaps not surprisingly, apart from in some very high tech spaces, it, was ex it has been experienced with great difficulty by both staff and students. So that's one example, the sort of, the, the sort of move to hybrid teaching, which we tried to discourage and then, and then circumstances overtook us. And the other area where we had, what I see personally as a bit of a victory was in the area of online proctoring. Understandably with online assessments, particularly in certain disciplines, there are concerns about academic integrity and the maintenance of academic standards. But my colleagues and I in the Eden Center were pretty convinced that online proctoring was not the answer. And so we, 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 we were able, for a number of reasons, we were able to join other colleagues, both inside the Eden Center, working with our students in partnership and also colleagues across the, the university to suggest that this was not a route um, down which LSE should be going at this time. Of course, there's lots of detail to that, but I won't go into that now. So um, Peter, maybe we can start with you. I mean, I know you're in a more of a leadership role, but maybe there are areas where you've experienced some of those, what I would like to think of our politicised dimensions, political politics that sometimes come into the mix when we think about academic development work. So I'll, I'll counter the, the high flex one. I've, I've been actually encouraging hybrid models partially because it should, if done well, 
trigger a design change. So if you design for that kind of um, what I've been calling space agnostic delivery so that it doesn't matter whether it's online or face-to-face, the design of the delivery works for either group of students and that you are able to create an environment where online students can interact with face-to-face students, work together, work collectively, which is actually quite a good transferable soft skill for people working in, in business, particularly now business has worked out you don't need to fly people around the world to have meetings, that you can actually run them all like this. If it's designed well, then it actually is a really valuable tool. Where I've lost that battle is nobody, uh, a lot of people have struggled with how much work it takes to design it. And to that degree, I guess that's the battle I lost is that we are running primarily remote and campus classes separately. We've got scale, which allows us to do it in the main. And we have got a couple of programs that we've set are only face-to-face because um, we have got a, a limited return to campus. We're not in the same situation both America and um, the UK are in in terms of COVID cases. So um, we have got a limited return to campus for people who are here in the country for this semester starting. Probably the 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 the, the area that I think turned out to be most political equally, and it's another counter to your point, Claire, was proctoring. As a university, the university said that it can't deliver exams without having them the capability of proctoring. I didn't like the idea, um, partially because of the vendorization of education, which I'm a particular railer against, as um, you might know, Claire. Um, But also, I think that once again, changing exams represent a design challenge. So if you take a design approach to your to your uh, assessment, uh, even if you take a design approach to exams, you're going to end up with a different exam than it would if it was proctored. So the victory in that sense is that I've got nearly three quarters of my exams moved into very different forms of exams, open book, um, and designed for non-proctored environments. So they're my two. Thank you, Peter. The long game is the reform of assessments. Um, so there have been had to be short-term contingencies and decisions which might not have been optimal. Mary, over to you. Yeah, well, I, I have to say that I feel incredi- incredibly grateful to work where I do in light of a conversation I had uh, about two weeks ago. We had the AACNU Association of American Colleges and Universities conference, and a number of my colleagues at other centers for teaching and learning were talking about how in some cases for example, they were forbidden not to email any faculty or they were not brought to the table for any of these conversations. So I, I feel grateful for the for experience that I had where I feel felt like um, we were brought to the table and it was a very learner-centered decision-making process. Um, I, I am probably somewhere in the middle between you, Claire, and you, Peter, about hybrid high-flex teaching. Um, we about 40% of our classes were offered in hybrid format. It was incredibly challenging for instructors. And so I feel going forward, we need to do it, but we can't do it as we've been doing it. And part of the challenge is that, you know, for face-to-face teaching, we have thousands of years of experience. For online teaching, people have been doing it basically since the beginning of the internet. I think high flex teaching is so incredibly new that we don't have that body of evidence that you were referring to at the beginning, Claire. And so I'm hopeful that with the collective minds, we can figure that piece out. 
Yeah. Uh, another piece that was challenging is that in order to de-densify students, Brown moved towards a three-term model, where essentially we were going all year round this academic year. Uh, and so that has been challenging given the conversations about academic stress and burnout. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I have to say that we feel our voice has been more strongly held, strongly heard across the university than it ever has been before. And 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 we were thrust centre stage at the end of March and we suddenly had to move online. So so on the whole, I feel like we've had a lot of voice, but sometimes obviously people, people at the top of the leadership do have to make pragmatic decisions um, which, for better or for worse. So I'm going to conclude, if that's all right, with a final question to you both, which is really to ask you, um, you're both in leadership positions of, 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 of big research-intensive universities, and I just wanted to ask you how you yourselves have tried to retain your scholarly critical identity in the midst of this pandemic when, when coming back to the notion of the reactive chalk face, we're having to react very quickly and the, the questions and the issues keep on coming uh, and there's not there sometimes doesn't seem that much space to 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 engage in a more in a slower more scholarly manner mary would you like to go first this time well i feel like it's important to carve out spaces for that <laughs> claire so so certainly the pace of work has increased but i've also found it helpful to uh, take some time. I like to run, so take some time for running or now that the winter has set in for indoor bicycling to do that. Um, but I'm also working on a scholarly project about um, the landscape of educational development for, for U.S. centers for teaching and learning. And so it's very helpful to have this side intellectually engaging project to be working on um, as something else to be thinking about besides academic continuity at, at Brown University. Yeah, thank you, Mary. What about you, Peter? Um, we decided, for better or for worse, in the middle of the pandemic to set up a research group. Um, it's quite a large research group of people who are primarily teaching-focused academics at the school, um, although not exclusively. Uh, includes ed devs and learning techs and the like. Uh, called co-design, which was primarily focused on how we transform business education and student experience. And starting that up, I, I found really interesting because what it's given me is a bit of a, 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 an uncommon and not, not, not a role I'm used to, which is being the person who is trying to develop around 55 or 60 researchers. Uh, many of them are um, early career and you may not be surprised to hear this Claire but also many of them are professional services staff who we're trying to build their capability to become researchers as well and I think actually having that lens has been the most important thing to keep my scholarly eye in is how do I see that notion of research on teaching and learning through the eyes of people who are learning it for the first time it's kind of the tea, it's the tea, it's the teacher's glare, if you will. Thank you, Peter. Well, I think that um, we had a discussion about how do we retain our scholarly critical identities in our academic development team just before the winter break. And it certainly was being experienced as quite a fault line in people's identities that they, 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 uh, and it's something that sort of I, I find as a sort of leader of a centre quite 
difficult to manage in the sense of colleagues were actually feeling like that their identity and credibility felt personally challenged because of the demands on their time above and beyond just the, the so to speak the normal working week and and so it's something that I think that for us um, in our particular identities in our institution the pandemic has amplified perhaps as 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 the, as the integration between education and research in um, academic development roles at the London School of Economics is still, I would say, a work in progress. Personally, um, I agree with Mary that it's really important to try and keep that scholarly critical work going on the, on on the side. And so I feel like um, Twitter has been fantastic for 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 staying in touch. Um, seeing links to great research articles and blog postings. Um, and then, you know, I feel like I've been trying to you think about the pandemic when I can at the back of my mind in a more critical scholarly way and think about some of these sort of the political dynamics of, of the work which we're doing. And I, I, I feel it's not a neutral space that we're operating an, into. And I, it hasn't come, I've written a blog on this before, but it hasn't come to anything more. But I think that's a research project I'm keen to develop in the future. And then with my old um, political science hat on, I, I remain interested and concerned about the whole post-Brexit higher education space and 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 how, how, how the UK is going to stay connected, particularly its students stay connected to broader um, networks of mobility and learning. So for, I'd like to, first of all, um, thank our colleagues, Peter and Mary. Peter has joined us very early in the morning from Australia. I'm sure he needs another coffee very soon. And, and Mary uh, in the middle of a busy workday from Rhode Island. Thank you both so much. It's been a really valuable discussion and I've been so interested in hearing your views and I'm really sorry we don't have more time because there's lots more questions I'd like to be asking so thank you both very much. <laughs>